Hey folks, welcome to Narratives. Narratives is a podcast exploring the ways in which the world is better than in the past, the ways it is worse, and the paths towards a better, more definite vision of the future. I'm your host, Will Jarvis, and I want to thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen to this episode. I hope you enjoy it. You can find show notes, transcripts, and videos at narrativespodcast.com. Additionally, in this episode, my friend Lars Doucet joins us as a co-host. Well, Chris, how are you doing this evening? Oh, I'm uh, great. A little tired. Uh, long day of teaching. <laughs> I love it. Well, Chris, thank you so much for taking the time this evening. Do you mind giving us a brief bio and some of the big ideas you're interested in? In this book? Or just generally? Yeah, so... Uh, this book is uh, a history of Henry George and the single tax movement. Um, you know, th- there are a-, a lot of arguments about it, uh, but or in it. Um, but the central argument is that Henry George plays an important role in sort of uh, maintaining the liberal tradition and moving it in a more egalitarian direction. Uh, and that he has a you know expansive impact on American politics in terms of reshaping local tax regimes and um, establishing um, social ownership of natural resources through the leasing of uh, public land in the United States. I love that. And Lars, I know you've got a, a, a ton of questions here, but before you before you hop into those, Chris, what was the motivation behind researching Henry George? Is not someone a lot of folks are familiar with. How did you first find him? What's kind of your origin story there? So I started off in labor history. Uh, and I had rarely heard of Henry George uh, as an undergraduate in U.S. history. And I encountered, um, you know, the Knights of Labor, which was the preeminent sort of labor union of the late 19th century United States. And I saw them um, embracing uh, Henry George's single tax. And I just had no no way of sort of conceptualizing that or understanding why they were drawn to this um, tax reform or what it was really all about. Um, and I, I thought there was more there. Um, and so I, I approached this from, I think, a question of sort of pure science. As, you know, I didn't come in as uh, in any way favorable to it, but I just saw a question that needed to be answered. What, what was this? What was its influence? Uh, where did it come from? That's great. That's great. So when you talk about things like the liberal tradition, you know, that word has had a lot of meanings over the years, you know, um, and but but could you kind of define for us what you mean by the word and what you believe, you know, kind of in summary, you know, Henry George and his broader movement contributed to, you know, what you call the the liberal tradition? You know, that's a thorny question because liberalism is a complex thing that has meant a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Uh, and, um, you know, one of the things that I talk about in the introduction is the various ways in which it has been interpreted over time. Uh, and I argue that Henry George comes in at a, um, you know, a, a juncture in which this liberal faith in the market has, is potentially turning against ideas of equality. Uh, it's clear that the market is not producing equal outcomes, and people who came from the abolitionist tradition, people who came from classical liberal tradition of you know John Stuart Mill and all of them were are, are you know thinking that maybe equality is just natural. Uh, and so Herbert Spencer comes along 
uh, and argues that for social Darwinism, this idea that human innate human difference uh, is the source of inequality, uh, and that and George argues against that. He pushes back and he says that it's social structures. Broadly speaking, I, you know, I think you know, uh, you know, my my answer was right. Liberalism means a lot of things, but broadly speaking, it embodies a, a faith in um, certain principles like democracy. Um, you know, openness of discourse, um, some sort of free market system, though I think it's never uh, been the kind of uh, unfettered market that I think a lot of people imagine liberalism to to be. Um, I think, you know, since John Stuart Mill and Adam Smith, liberals have always believed that there were certain dangers in um, in monopoly. And Henry George builds off of those. Right. So it's really interesting is when you're talking about um, Spencer, right? So when you say social Darwinism, for the sake of the audience, I mean, we're basically meaning, you know, when, when we say innate human differences, we basically mean the social Darwinists are saying, well, some people groups, by which they often meant ethnicities, um, were just better than others in exactly the way that that sounds, right? Just like this openly kind of eugenicist, um, and sometimes it's outright racist sort of way, right? Is that what we're talking about with social Darwinism? Very much so. And I think that I probably um, do not do enough to highlight this in the course of the book in that um, when Spencer is looking for his ideas, what, what he's really drawing upon is, you know, differences in human societies uh, that exist at his time. And he's not they're often deeply stereotyped uh, uh, ideas of difference that aren't rooted in any practical experience because he, you know, barely leaves England. <laughs> but he's pulling on racial stereotypes that are accepted by his audience to say, look, clearly um, the reason why we are this way as British people and, uh, you know, Africans are this way uh, is because of our genetics. It's just inherent to who we are. Um, and I argue that one of the central points of progress and poverty, George's, you know, um, magnus opus, is that um, societies have risen, but they've also fallen. <laughs> uh, and they, they've done so pretty regularly. And so uh, George is setting out to prove, and I think he effectively does, that you can't um, attribute uh, progress to um, to genetic difference, um, and that you can't necessarily attribute it to technological development either, because technology in the hands of, um, you know, bad co governance is, you know, um, potentially more problematic than it is, you know, boon to people. Now, what's interesting is that in, in modern racial discourse, you know, we, we have the axes that everyone's always familiar with, but like in the, the eugenicists were, were very imaginative in terms of all the groups that they thought were bad, um, the social Darwinists of the time. So it's not just, you know, African-Americans or Asians, but it's also like Irish people, for instance, is, is, is a big category that was the target of the, the English social uh, Darwinists. And you talk about a uh, great length in the book about how George um, received a lot of early attention from from Irish, um, both Irish-Americans and on I guess you wouldn't call it the continent, but the island of Ireland, of course. <laughs> and I was wondering if you could speak a little about that. Yeah. Um, 
you know, uh, George, you know, he, he marries an Irish Catholic, which is somewhat unusual for a Protestant at the time. Uh, but, you know, George has a very ecumenical faith in which he believes that all religions have, you know, a certain core common truth and that there is no single route to salvation. And, um, you know, George is uh, very attractive to many Irish nationalists because, Ireland is a nation of, you know, tenants, and there's an idea that um, the core of British oppression is absentee land ownership, ownership by the English. Um, And, you know, George makes an argument that nationalism is inherently tied up with the idea of land ownership, that if uh, the idea of nation is coterminous with a a piece of land, a territory, um, that we consider our, you know, collective domain, then um, the the only way to really be a nation is for the nation as a whole to own it. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, you know, not really, um, the, the, the land is a sort of common property of the entire nation. Now, what's interesting is that you also contrast, you know, you talk about how there was this like kind of crux moment for liberalism, by which we mean kind of the modern liberal order rather than necessarily you know, the modern Democratic Party. Um, But what's interesting is that you talk about in the book this kind of, you know, Spencer's on the one side, George's on the other, but you really also like the kind of Spencerist movement is kind of tied in with, I don't know what you would call it, but kind of like high modernist central planners, Mm -hmm. right? And um, the vibe I kind of took away from it, and tell me if this is the wrong takeaway from it, but a much more kind of authoritarian-minded view of the future, Right. The kinds of things that lent themselves towards um, the the Soviet Bolshevik communists and the Maoists and, um, you know, even to a certain extent, the fascist autocrats um, with these kind of views of central planning. You know, I went to architecture school, Le Corbusier, that sort of thing. Um, Is that an accurate kind of takeaway of the kind of opposing camp, one of the opposing camps to the Georgists? Or is that not an accurate kind of takeaway? You know, I, I think um, that's that's fair. Um, there are undercurrents within what what comes to be called progressivism that, in some ways, anticipate what we would think of as fascism today. Though, of course, they weren't fascist because there, there was no thing at, such thing at the time. Right. Um, but there was. Um, you know, the, the United States had many of the same concerns that Italy and Germany would have in terms of national power, um, the, the sense that we were behind in the race for imperial colonies. And people like Teddy Roosevelt and Herbert Crowley uh, believed that a strong government and centralization of power would be um, would be pivotal to securing America's place in the world. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think it's... Uh, you know, it, I wouldn't call them fascists necessarily. Many of them, I think, do realize in the wake of World War One and the the sense of that the uh, government has been used to oppress people, to censor uh, people. Uh, you have you know an ethnic backlash. You have all of these things that dissuade many progressives from their once sort of boundless faith in government. Right? They they um, the the term progressive gives way to the idea of liberalism as people realize maybe there do need to be some sort of constraints on government. Um, 
but yeah, there, there, there is a current of, um, of American thought that becomes very popular around the same time that Henry George is in ascendance that sees expertise um, in the, in charge of, uh, you know, an unlimited, um, you know, a federal government with unlimited power as the route to progress. Um, Georgists are always sort of in conflict with that. Um, They don't, they're not opposed to expertise, but they believe that it's important that expertise sort of be subject to popular control. Mm-hmm. And so you sometimes see these like kind of modern institutions like, I don't know, like the Gate Foundation or the World Economic Forum or whatever, you know, that are that are they feel kind of to me as as kind of inheritors of that kind of high modernist approach of leave it to the experts. We know what's best. You know, um, presumably they have good intentions. Maybe they do. Maybe they don't. Um, but the, this notion that it's like there's a certain class of people who kind of have the birthright to make decisions for everybody else. Um, and I was just kind of wondering what um, if that here, here's the point I'm trying to make. So the Georgists have this three factor model of the economy, land, labor and capital. And by land, they also mean natural resources and the neoclassical or kind of received economic model, even if it acknowledges land, is essentially two factor because they roll land and natural resources into capital. And so Georgists, you make this case about liberalism. Um, right. And that Georgists are very much about kind of unleashing land and natural resources by allowing it to be shared in some way in order to liberate both land and capital. Whereas the kind of impression I have, and again, tell me if this is an incorrect interpretation of your work, is that the high modernist kind of central planning mindset, um, because it doesn't get that or it, do, or it chooses not to, winds up being all about, okay, how do we best control labor and capital to to get the best outcomes? And in that way, it, it kind of is kind of trapped with because of essentially the poverty of its framework of what inputs there are to the economy, which kind of lends itself towards the more top-down kind of, you know, in, in some ways sort of... You, do you see where I'm sort of going with this? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I um, mean, agree, disagree? Am I, am, I, am I kind of spinning too much from that? You know, I, I think that, you know, the, the, the roots of, um, you know, progressive infatuation with expertise are often, you know, kind of um, based on the, I think, the class and ethnic divisions of the period in which, you know, a, a middle class or a professional class that fills itself and battled by uh, both, you know, m- you know, monopolists at the top and, you know, uh, working people and immigrants at the bottom are looking for expertise as a... Um, An othering mechanism, kind of divided out. Yeah, as a way to secure their own social authority. And I think expertise is oftentimes explicitly contrasted with, um, you know, immigrant democracy. Um, Expertise is a way to take control from um, urban immigrant communities like the Tammany Hall in New York City. There there is also, but I think to your point, there, there is a... <clears throat> there is a way in which it represents a certain kind of, um, you know, pessimism. You know, um, th- a lot of these progressives might have been inheritors of a certain kind of abolitionist tradition and the, uh, um, this idea that 
you would have equality and democracy in the wake of the Civil War and the development of a society built on freedom of contract. Uh, and when that doesn't happen, uh, they they embrace inequality as natural, uh, and they they lean into that and try to uh, argue that they are the ones who are the most sort of evolutionary, fittest evolutionary from a biological perspective. Um, and so I do, you know, look at the George's single tax in part as a kind of uh, antidote to that as something that inspires optimism amongst a different set of middle class Americans, uh, um, a type of social reform that will reconcile the marketplace with um, dreams of um, of equality, quality, and that you know provide you know a possible future in which you know racial and class divisions can be mitigated. That's really that's really interesting. One thing I want to talk about is, you know, you talk in the book about the whole history of the movement. It's so expansive. We could have a whole series of episodes on it. So we're just going to have to limit ourselves to a couple key highlights, unfortunately. <laughs> so what I would like to get into is the Georgist wins that you highlight, you know, some things that we kind of take for granted that you credit at least in whole or in part to the Georgist movement. Um, and one of those, which you highlighted earlier, was natural resource management. Could you mention specifically what you mean by that? And then could you point to the specific policies in America um, and how the Georgist influence worked on them and and to what degree they endure today? Yeah, so... Um uh, you know the the greatest resource of early nineteenth and or sorry late nineteenth and early twentieth century America was a you know vast public domain. Uh, the federal government owned most of the land, and um, for many years the, the model of um, utilizing that for social purposes was primarily to give it to people. <laughs> um, Homestead. Yeah, there, there was a, there was a period of public auctioning. Um, in which you know people would buy it from the government, um, that you know increasingly was sort of usurped by uh, squatters who just claimed it. And then during the Civil War, the Homestead Act is passed to establish a system wherein people could claim 160 acres of land. Um, and so the idea was, in a lot of ways, to privatize this vast public domain as quickly as possible. Uh, you see a pushback against that with conservationism, and of course, uh, Teddy Roosevelt um, um, develops public parks. Uh, but you also see Georgists uh, from you know Teddy Roosevelt's administration and earlier pushing for a model in which natural resources would retain uh, in public ownership uh, and would be leased out, uh, and they see this as in a lot of ways equivalent. Uh, to uh, taxation. Um, in some ways, it's potentially preferable in terms of resource utilization because with taxation, there's a strong incentive to use it as quickly as possible, whereas with leasing, that's not necessarily the case uh, because you're collecting revenue based off of the resources that are extracted. What's so, a practical example of one of these uh, resource leasing systems? Uh, well, it, it, it happens all throughout the public domain today. Um, uh, the federal government today leased out, leases out oil land, uh, leases out timber land, it leases out um, grazing land uh, for 
for animals. This was um, famously a point of contention recently with the uh, Bundy family. Uh, right, right, right. <laughs> um, because they, they, their family had leased the land for, for many years, and then the federal government said, actually, this is probably more useful for conservation purposes. Uh, and they tried to assert that they owned it privately. It, you know, in a lot of ways, hearkening back to the the old homesteading model, where you know people individuals could claim the public domain. Um, but you know, Georgists argued that these were vital, you know, public resources that they were, you know, um, that they were finite and they could benefit the entire community. Um, and of course, you know, in in, in Alaska, you have. Uh, you know, uh, a model based off of, you know, leasing public resources and using it to, you know, provide substantial, <laughs> um, uh, you know, assistance to the average citizen. And this begins um, uh, under um, Secretary of Interior Franklin Lane, who is a personal friend of Henry George. Uh, and it is, you know, advocated by uh, a variety of Georgians in Congress um, who are who are pushing for this a transformation uh, to the system of leasehold. Right now, so an, an interesting example to me is hydropower, right? Because I'm um, in addition to being born and raised in Texas, my mom's a Norwegian immigrant, so I'm a citizen in Norway too. And Norway, interestingly, this is not in your book, but um, Norway sets up a hydropower system in the early 20th century, and this hydropower system of leasing it based off of the principle that the hydropower resources, the water, is the property of the Norwegian people collectively. Um, this same principle is the, becomes the basis for Norway's famous petroleum management system, which goes on to be a huge success. And um, I've been in contact with some Norwegian researchers who essentially assert that both models are very Georgist in origin, and the first one explicitly so. Um, and so I was very interested in reading your book because I keep reading about all these characters and the timeline. I'm pretty convinced now that that these two countries were in contact and there was some diffusion from America to Norway that kind of set up this legacy that today the average Norwegian is completely forgotten about, which is which is very interesting to me. And I was wondering if you knew anything about this. Yeah, I, I don't know anything about the Norwegian connection, though Georgists are um, involved in American Georgists are very engaged in world affairs and, you know, corresponding with other nations uh, um, um, I yeah I, I I don't know anything specifically about that um, connection, but I do know that American Georgists are uh, working to establish publicly owned hydropower at the same time. And in fact, um, um, the the first dams of what would become the Tennessee Valley Authority are laid out by uh, Secretary of War Newton Baker, who was the protege of Tom Johnson, who was the protege of Henry George. Let's talk about Tom Johnson next. I want to talk <laughs> about Tom Johnson and Hazen Pingree. Uh, Tom yeah. Johnson in Cleveland, Ohio, and Hazen Pingree in Detroit. Um, tell us all about them and their fights with, you know, the uh, utilities and railroads and, and the people's budget, all of that. Yeah, uh, that's a good question. I, 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 I wasn't able to find, um, you know, evidence that, that made me confident that Hazen Pendree was inspired by Henry George, though he, he probably was. And so I, I, I didn't talk about him. Um, but, you know, Hazen Pingree is a mayor of uh, Detroit who, uh, known as Potato Patch Pingree because he opens up, um, 
you know, vacant land in the city for farmers to come in, for people to come in and grow uh, food and to help support themselves. So there, there's definitely an element of, you know, communal ownership of land in this. And he's also uh, fighting for um, lower traction rates and uh, streetcar rates. Right. So so can you describe what that is a little bit? Because most people don't have streetcars today and traction usually <laughs> sounds like a medical procedure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, during this period in American history, public transit is private transit. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, private companies own uh, the various types of uh, public transit that are available. Uh, and Georgists argue that this is a natural monopoly, in part because it's rooted in, um, you know, rights of way, which are exclusive ownership to strips of land that are very hard to assemble in cities. And in fact, they're, they're rarely assembled privately. Uh, usually uh, what happens is that a private company leases a public street. It goes to the, um, to the city council and says, um, you know, we want to build a traction line. We'll pay you so-and-so much amount of money uh, to build along a street. And uh, the city might will we'll establish certain conditions like the fare will be so-and-so amount of money. Um, Georgia's believe that this should be publicly owned, uh, but oftentimes state constitutions of the time make that impossible. So people like Tom Johnson, who was, um, you know, a close associate of Henry George and went on to be uh, one of the most famous mayors in American history, um, he fought for a limitation on the price of streetcars, limiting it to three, um, sense a ride to make sure that streetcar companies weren't uh, collecting monopolistic rents from their businesses. Um, Johnson also assembles a company that is owned by various associates who are are working on a, uh, a lease that um, allows it to be purchased by the city at the first possible convenience and is broadly uh, as close as he could possibly get to a public um, transit system. And the argument here is that because it's calling for public ownership or essentially taxation of the monopoly rents are able to charge because it's not like you can just go build your own private transit system to compete with the current one because it relies essentially on monopolizing this one set of tracks that is very hard to assemble, like you said, or or they're they're capitalizing on a scarce government license. The government has, in effect, created this monopoly. Yeah. And so because of that, it's not like the natu- the free market can naturally force someone else to compete with that, 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 that railroad company, essentially, is what you're saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the streetcars almost exclusively, not always, but usually have to get franchises, leases of land from the city. Uh, and by and large, uh, companies realize it's a lot easier to pay individual legislators than it is to pay the public as a whole. <laughs> Interesting. So uh, the, 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 these uh, franchises are associated with corruption, um, and they, they tend to... Um, you know, spread corruption throughout municipal governance. And so Georgia's, you know, they believe in kind of a, you know, a strict boundary between public and private. They believe that certain things are inherently monopolistic. And so uh, have, bringing the government into them is only going to make government more corrupt uh, because um, there's nothing you could do to really, um, if government tries to regulate it, basically the company will pay off the government. 
which is what happens with franchises. Um, and so things that are inherently monopolistic should just be owned by the government, uh, whereas things that are part of a competitive economy should remain, you know, free and open. Uh, and Georgists are in a lot of ways, you know, libertarians when it comes to factors that aren't considered monopolistic. They, um, they There's a stark division between those things that they think should be part of a you know, socialist sector and part that should be, you know, privately owned and unregulated and untaxed because they represent the fruits of labor. And so by the latter, you think it should just be, you mean like regular small businesses, right? Yeah. Small businesses which don't rely on some kind of monopoly or control of a market or access, you know, and and, and Georgists in that case, you're talking about free from tax being capital and income taxes, right? Yeah. Right. Um, oh, you know, other, you know, the income tax is not, um, not really a phenomenon throughout most of the period in which they're working. Um, and they, they have a complex relationship with it. In some ways, they support it as better than the alternatives. They're, they're, they're dealing particularly with the tariff, you know, right. uh, protective uh, tariffs, taxes on imported goods that they believe uh, reduce competition. Um, they're also opposed to things like municipal licenses, where uh, people who want to be part of a particular profession have to pay the government um, to to be part of that profession. They're opposed to, you know, um, well, sales taxes aren't really a thing, but mo- yeah, mostly uh, the you know the tariff and uh, licenses. Interesting. So there's um, there's a lot of kind of rhymes with what we're experiencing today, you know, so the modern age versus the Gilded Age, you know. So there's these fights with railroads, with transportation monopolies, you know. Nowadays, it might not be streetcars, but like, I mean, Norfolk Southern is in the news for this massive, you know, massive chemical release in, in East Palestine. Um, you've got Pete Buttigieg and whatever he's doing with the airlines or whatever he's not doing. And then you have, you know, an ascendant labor music movement, which has been, you know, moribund for decades until now it's heating up again. And then of course the rent is too damn high. Right. Mm -hmm. And so um, it's very interesting to me that there seem to be these parallels to George's time. Um, I guess specifically zooming in on the transportation things, you know, you you hear things like um, with, you know, the trouble with the railroad seems like something that we should have been passed by now. But I'm wondering if you had any specific commentary on what's been going on in um, East Palestine and how it relates to, you know, these these old, old fights over railroads. Because George's first piece that gets him famous is, of course, what the railroad will bring us. And the answer is essentially doom. <laughs> well, he, he, he believes uh, he, he believed that. Uh, the railroad would create greater social inequality because rents would rise as, with economic progress, which is a central argument. You know, in terms of uh, the railroads, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm reticent to comment on contemporary issues because I, I'm, it's not my area of expertise. You're a historian um, staying in but, your lane, I can respect that. But, but, but I, you know, I think that. Uh, in some places, you, you have seen a pushback from, you know, public ownership of railroads. Um, I, I think in England, for example, um, you've had privatization uh, and the, those experiments haven't always gone very well. But we you, there was a period in which 
some of these issues were dealt with in a way that seemed productive, <laughs> uh, that seemed to mitigate some of the issues. Uh, and then you had maybe what you call two-factor economics come in, uh, where um, uh, libertarians who didn't see a difference between monopolies and um, legitimate businesses um, deregulated some of these sectors um, or privatized some of these sectors. Um, and the issues that the that legislation was initially meant to deal with um, have consequently reemerged. Um, uh, yeah, I'll just leave it there. <laughs> yeah, so it's interesting. You mentioned that word libertarian. You know, you'd mentioned it before saying that Georgists have some affinity with libertarians. And then here you just mentioned that, you know, they have some disaffinities with them. So I wonder if you could explore that a little, especially talking about this character, Albert J. Nock, and the history of the term itself and its connection to kind of the Georgist movement and how today, you know, where, where that term kind of stands versus where it originally came from. Yeah, so, you know, uh, Albert J. Nock is um, uh, originally sort of a Georgist who's tied into this Ohio crowd that we talked about with um, Tom Johnson. He's uh, particularly close to a, a kind of an affiliate in uh, Marin um, um, in Toledo, uh, Brand Whitlock. Uh, so he's part of this Georgist movement, but like many Georgists, he sort of becomes disillusioned after World War I. Uh, the movement goes into a sharp decline. Um, it becomes sort of increasingly less likely that you will see any sort of uh, single tax stepping in to realize this system that he uh, imagined. Um, and he's not not really on board with the New Deal. Uh, there are a lot of you know subtle and not so subtle reasons why his brand of economic reform sort of clashes with that um and so uh you know he maintains a lot of the ideals that he had as a georgist uh as a georgist he fought against um vice enforcement in toledo he fought against laws that you know banned immorality right um and he was always an opponent of the income tax um he, he looked to the single tax and land value taxation is the centerpiece for um, for a relatively egalitarian state. Uh, and when that disappeared from the, the equation, he, yeah, he went on a kind of nihilistic <laughs> uh, uh, spree. He, he, he maintained much of his previous analysis that uh, he he continued to believe that the single tax was the ideal solution, but he believed democracies would never be smart enough to realize it. <laughs> and so he uh, turned against government, uh, and he began to use the term libertarian. Uh, he popularized the term libertarian. Um, there were um, other Georgists like um, uh, Chodorov who sort of followed in this trajectory down a line of what would become modern libertarianism. Uh, and, you know, uh, William Buckley's National Review, which becomes kind of a founding, foundational sort of um, a journal in the development of conservatism, was modeled after uh, The Freedman, which was uh, Albert J. Knox's publication. And Buckley always called himself a single taxer. And um, well, not always, but when it came up, he, he, he said he believed in the single tax. Um, 
And uh, so, I, I mean, I think the the um, maybe the through line is that in a lot of ways, Georgism was a kind of starting point for libertarianism. Um, it with with an, uh, the idea of a, a you know a, a state that would be founded um, without any sort of appropriation of earned income. Right, it would be a state founded entirely on the appropriation of unearned monopolistic rents, uh, and then after a nihilistic uh, spree, libertarianism lost its kind of balancing <laughs> uh, portion of you know here's how we actually create a government <laughs> based off of this principle, uh, and it kind of you know uh, became what it is today. That's, that's certainly one take. That's interesting. That's fascinating. Um, so I'm interested in, you, you kind of mentioned Georgism kind of fizzling, right? You know, and so that's kind of the quandary a lot of modern people encountering Georgism for the first time is, is like, this guy was, Henry George was incredibly famous in his own time. You know, there's 200,000 people attend his funeral. Um, you know, they say his funeral was more lavish than Lincoln's, all this kind of stuff. He, he's just this towering figure, and he's just a footnote in the modern history. So what happened? And reading your book, the story that gets told is kind of this – there's there's a couple of factors you allude to, which is, you know, um, maybe some strategic mistakes by certain Georgists, um, some coalitions falling apart and some backstabbing um, by some political partners they team up with. Um you know, the neoclassicals coming in with their model. Um, but then you also talk about the automobile and, you know, the expansion of, of the new frontier, right? And I was wondering, you know, what what is it? Is it any one of those things? Is it all of those things? Is it the rising specter of communism and capitalism just sucking all the oxygen out? Like, like what would you say if you had to pick one, you know, but then you can hedge after you pick one? So, yeah, I think historians usually try to avoid monocausal uh, uh, analysis, but I think the the central one is the automobile and uh, suburbanization. Uh, Georgism was founded as a solution to urban inequality uh, rooted in high urban rents, uh, and when you have the popularization of the automobile and then you know New Deal programs that you know specifically incentivize suburbanization. Uh, and often make urban economies almost impossible. Um, the, this idea that um, there there was some sort of 